something amazing happens when God reveals himself to you. You want every heart to confess that Christ is Lord. That's, that song reminded me of why we preach. It really is my desire that every heart in here today would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. I hope that happens today. Turn to Deuteronomy 4. And let's start with a question. Really important question. Who is God? Who is God? That's the most important question you can ask and answer. And you absolutely have to get it right. The Lord said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Your eternal destiny and existence depends on your answer to this question, who is God? And I want you to notice that I'm not asking, is there a God? But who is He? And here's something very important that you need to, you need to know and you need to realize that God is not who you think He is. God is not who you think. Just, just look at it human history and you'll see two things are true number one humanity knows that there is a God and when we are unable to suppress that truth we invent a God we invent a God and we invent a religion that's of our own imagination but here's the problem that doesn't work because God is not who you think he is God is who he says he is. Now I get that little phrase from an old country preacher in Kentucky named Henry Mahan. I heard it over a decade ago and it has made quite the impression on me and it's true. God is not who you think he is. God is who he says he is. And that has everything to do with today's passage in Deuteronomy 4. And what it means is that God is so high and holy and imperceptible and incomprehensible that we would have no idea as to who God is or what he's like if he didn't act first. We'd have no chance of getting God right. And we'd just be making stuff up. And the history of human religion is proof, proof of how ridiculous our ideas about God can be. And I want you to know that this is the root of all idolatry. Wrong thoughts about God. As soon as you say, I think God is like this, or I don't, I don't think God's like that. And those ideas are not rooted in the word of God, the words from God. You are guilty of idolatry. Without light from heaven, we're just stabbing in the dark. Without revelation from God himself, we are just simply making up little gods of our imagination. God is not who you think he is. God is who he says he is. 
And I want you to see how this idea is revealed in the connection between last week's sermon, last week's passage, and this week's passage. Last week, Dustin preached on verses 1 through 14, and his theological focus was on the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God's Word, this this truth, this fact that the one true and living God has revealed Himself to humanity in His written Word. And we have an obligation to this. And now this week, we're going to look, look at Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 through 20, excuse me, through 31. And the theological focus is not on the doctrine of Scripture, but on the doctrine of God. And I want you to see the connection. The doctrine of Scripture leads to the doctrine of God. God has revealed Himself in His Word. Okay, what has He revealed about Himself? What has He shown us that we can't find out? On our own. In other words, who is God? And God answers this question in a wonderful way in this passage. By reminding Israel of how he revealed himself to them. As Moses is reminding them and teaching them more about the second commandment that forbids idolatry. You have words from God about God. Don't abandon that truth for a lie, he says. Don't have wrong thoughts about God. You've got no excuse now. So let's come and behold and adore and worship the one true and living God. Let's pray for his help in that. Father, you are our God in heaven. And there is none like you. There is none like you. We confess as your people that you are the one true and the living God. And we want to know you. We're like your servant Moses. If we have found favor in your sight, please show us now your ways that we may know you. We want to know you. Make yourself known to us, Lord. Open up your word to us, Lord. Show us your glory. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. Thank you, Lord. For your mercy and grace in doing so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Like we did last week, let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to back up one paragraph and kind of overlap uh, with Dustin's passage. Let's start in verse 9 through 31 from Deuteronomy 4. Moses says, Only take care... And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that They may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form there was only a voice and he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform that is the ten commandments and he wrote them on he wrote them on two tablets of stone 
And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on that day, the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure like the, like in the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to the heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them the things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. He brought you out of Egypt to be a people for His own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the, the Lord was angry with me because of you. and He swore that I should not cross the Jordan and I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. So t take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you. And make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God. And obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Be seated. So here we have the second generation of Israel, the front door again of the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after that first generation died under the wrath of God because of their unbelief and their despising of the promised land. And now Moses is preaching to them. He's preaching to this second generation before they enter this land that is filled with God's enemies filled with pagans, a land filled with idol worshipers. And Moses is winding down this first sermon after reminding them of God's faithfulness and their parents' unfaithfulness. And now he begins to segue into the second sermon, which is going to be a long discourse about God's law that starts in chapter 5. And you can see this pivot that he makes in 
the first word of verse 15, therefore. And so the, the flow, the flow of this passage beginning at verse 12 is Moses reminds them that God spoke from Mount Sinai. And God commanded them to obey the ten words. And God commanded Moses to teach them the ten words. And that's what Moses is doing. Again. And so he starts like this. Verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. And then he begins this. Teach them the law. And interestingly enough, he starts with the second commandment. What is the second commandment? No idolatry, right? It's actually twofold. It, do not make any idols. Do not bow down and worship any idols. Okay? Do not make. Do not worship. You see that in verse 16. In verse 19, verse 16, he says, Don't make any idols. Verse 19, don't bow down. Don't you bow down and serve them. This is exactly what God said from the fire on Mount Sinai back in Exodus 20 when he gave the commandment originally. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them. Now that should be enough, right? God said... God said so. I mean, if God says you just obey, right? No talking back, no questions, just do it, right? Because I said so. Remember when your mama used to tell you that? How that would frustrate you? When you asked the why question, why? Because I said so. And I know many of you parents swore you'd never say that. God is not like us. God is not obliged to give us an explanation. But here's the marvelous thing. He does. He actually does. And in doing so, he, re he reveals a little something about ourselves and a whole lot about himself. So I want you to see that. I want you to see 10 plus reasons why God gives us this commandment against idolatry from the text. Reason number one, and know this about yourself, we are prone to idolatry. We are prone to idolatry. He says, therefore, therefore, Watch yourselves very carefully. See that in verse 15? It literally means guard your soul exceedingly. Same thing, verse 9. Take care. Keep your soul diligently. And this, this commandment, this second commandment against idolatry is actually a merciful warning from a God who knows us. He knows us. Far too well. The Lord shows compassion on those who fear Him, for He knows their frame. And understand this, God knows the very intention of the thoughts of your heart continually. More than you do. Famous quote by John Calvin. He says, The human mind, so to speak, is a perpetual forge of idols and that's the problem we are idol factories who dwell in the midst of an idol factory do you know that idolatry is our nature idolatry is our environment we are surrounded by it it's the norm it's the expectation it's what drives our economy it's everywhere it's inside and it's outside. It's true for us. It's true for this generation. And God has called them. He called them out of a land of idolatry in Egypt. And he's sending them into a land of idolatry. 
And he's reminding them, mercifully, he's reminding them about this sin that is always crouching at the door. And he says, watch yourselves, watch yourselves very, very carefully. And he explains in verse 19, look, verse 19, he explains how this, how we are prone to let temptation progress and give birth to sin. Look at it in verse 19. These five steps. Beware lest, number one, you raise your eyes and then when you see the sun and the moon and the stars of heaven and all the hosts of, of heaven, you'll be drawn or lured away and bow down and then serve them. Yes, the heavens are glorious. There is an awe and a majesty when you look up. But beware, he says, don't get drawn into worshiping the creation that declares my glory. That's my glory. We're rightly and naturally drawn to the glories of his creation. We're prone to idolatry, and God hates idolatry. This is reason number two. He's given us this commandment. God hates idolatry. We're going to see several reasons why, but he explicitly says that idolatry is corrupt and evil, and he shows just how foolish it is. Idolatry is corrupt. It is rotten to the core he says this twice in verse 16 in verse 29 about acting corruptly the, the, the word literally means rotten or ruined or spoiled idolatry is rotten to the core it is evil and it provokes God to anger you see that in verse 25 if you act corruptly and you do what is evil Idolatry is evil in the sight of the Lord and it provokes him to anger. It's corrupt and it's evil and God hates it. Not to mention, it's dumb. It's foolish and futile. This, this is not the last time God is going to make fun of the absolute absurdity of worshiping idols. Look at verse 28, when he describes these false gods made of wood and stone. They're, they're just the works of human hands. They don't see anything. They don't hear anything. They don't eat. They don't smell. Isaiah 44 is an awesome example of this divine sarcasm against the foolishness of idol worship. He basically says, you're bowing down to a log. You're bowing down to a log that you cut down and carved with your own hands. You're, you're trusting in a dead thing. It can't see. It can't watch over you. You're praying to a statue that can't hear. It can't hear, therefore it can't save you. He doesn't have legs. He can't even move. He's a stick. A stone. You're carrying around your God who should be carrying you. You see how dumb that is? God's people should have more wisdom than this, right? They certainly have more revelation because Yahweh is the one true and living God. He hates idolatry. Why? Because idolatry is a monumental, monumental misrepresentation of who God is. And I want you to get that. This is why God hates it so much. And this, this gets to the heart of the matter. So, so God's law is a reflection of who God is. But man, none more focused and targeted than the second commandment. Idols are supposed to be representations of God. But think about it. How can you represent God? How? God himself says in Isaiah, To whom then 
will you liken me? To, to what likeness will you compare with me? How can you represent God? You can't. That's the problem and that's the offense. Idolatry belittles God's holiness. It perverts God's nature. It assaults God's character. It's a monumental misrepresentation of God. Why? Because reason number four, God is spirit. God is spirit. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is where God has given us explicit grounds as to why this is evil, as to why he's given us the second commandment. He says in verse 15, Since you saw no form, you saw no form on that day when God spoke to you out of the fire, beware of making images of me. Back in verse 12, it says the same thing. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. You see the logic there? He says, you saw no form, so how can you make an image? You saw no form because I showed you no form. And I showed you no form because I have no form. Because God is spirit, Jesus says. He showed no form because God has no form. Now here's a question for you. Could God have shown them some representation of himself at Mount Sinai? Sure he could. As a matter of fact, there's been many theophanies before and since, including when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And even at Mount Sinai, God produced one of the most spectacular displays of His divine majesty ever witnessed by mankind. These thick clouds and smoke and fire and thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts and earthquakes. But no image of God. He said, you saw no form, only a voice. That, my friend, was an object lesson from heaven. And the object lesson was, there is no object God is spirit. The best way to describe the spiritual nature of God is not with objects from creation, but with words from heaven. Now what does that mean? God is spirit. Man, think about the wonder of this. What does it mean? God is spirit. It means, number one, God is not material. He's not material. Everything in the universe is made of something. The invisible air that we breathe is made of molecules. The light that races back and forth throughout the universe is made of photons. Even the unseen angels who are described as ministering spirits are made of something. But not God. God is not made of anything because God is not made. God is pure being. Simply, I am far superior to and in no need of material comp composition. God is spirit. Second thing it means is God is imperceptible. Because God is not made of anything in the universe, He cannot be perceived by anything in the universe. God is imperceptible. His essence cannot be seen or heard or felt or smelled or tasted. 
unless God condescends in some sort of intentional, created theophany, he cannot be perceived. This is how high and transcendent and beyond our wildest imagination of who God really is. One fourth fourth century theologian said, it is not in our power to see him but it is in his power to appear to us. The Bible describes this quality of God as his invisibility. John says, no one has ever seen God. Paul says, Christ is the image of the invisible God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is spirit, which also means God is spiritual. Not the way you're spiritual. God is spiritual. Man, I want you to, I really want you to make the connection between his prohibition against physical idolatry and the spiritual nature of God. In my opinion, one of the most important revelations of who God is was given to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Do you remember that? When when Moses said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God came down and he hid Moses in a rock and covered him up and passed before him and there he proclaimed his name. And do you remember what God said about himself? Actually, do you remember why Moses was even talking to him to begin with at this point? Why was Moses talking to him? The golden calf. Israel had seen and heard everything at Mount Sinai, but no form of God. They had received the ten words. The second one which said, do not make any carved images. Do not worship any images. And 30 days later, what are they doing? They make and they worship a cow. A little cow made out of gold. And it's in this moment when God makes one of his most important revelations to humanity in all of history when he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How do you make an image of that? You see the connection between their idolatry and this awesome revelation of God. Part of that same revelation about who God is in Exodus 34 is actually in the commandment. Don't make a carved image. Don't worship a carved image because I'm a jealous God and I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. That's in the commandment. What he says when he reveals himself to Moses is part of the commandment. And Moses is making the same connection here in verse 24. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Don't make an idol. God is spirit. God is spiritual, not material. God is love, not wood. God is merciful, not metal. You cannot image love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You can't represent the spiritual things of God with sticks and stones. How foolish. But you can with words. This is why you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. God is spirit. And the fifth reason why God gives this commandment is God is creator. Look look at verses 16 through 19 here. See if you recognize this from anywhere. Verse 16. Do not make a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal, winged bird, nothing that creeps on the ground, not like the fish, not like the sun, moon, stars. Does that sound familiar? 
That's the last half of the creation account in Genesis 1 recited backwards. Day 6, day 5, day 4. Who wrote Genesis 1? Moses. We always think Genesis 1 is it, it's merely a historical account of creation, and it is. But we should also see it as a polemic against idolatry and creature worship. That would be a really good reminder for people who were just redeemed out of Egypt. Land full of idolatry and creature worship, wouldn't it? Why are you worshiping those? God made those things. Remember, God made the things that Egypt worships. Remember how God demonstrated his sovereignty over all those things in the plagues of Egypt. How in the world can you represent the creator with anything, with absolutely anything from his creation? How? He's teaching, God is teaching his idol-worshiping people the truth about himself, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. To whom then will you liken me? To what then will you compare me to? What will you compare God to? I mean, all you've got to work with is stuff from creation. Oh, I want you to get that. Like, let's do a little exercise right now. I want you to stop. I want you to think. We're not being idol worshipers. We're just, this is an example, illustration. Okay. I want you to imagine a picture of God in your mind. And I want you to reach as far out as you can, be as outlandish as you can, truly something out of this world, and make up an image of God in your mind. Now, guess what? Anything you just came up with, everything you just came up with, is at best some derivative of your imagination of something that God created. Why? You ain't got nothing else to work with. You're not out there. You're in here. You're in creation. God's not. Well, he is. He's everywhere because he's spirit. What a glorious thing. How demeaning is it to represent the creator as a sinful man or a slimy frog or a puny little galaxy? Sixth reason why idolatry is forbidden here or commanded here. God is gracious. God has been gracious to you. Now, the Lord is gracious to everybody, to everything. He is good and gracious to all of his creatures, to all men, but he has been especially gracious to his chosen people. And this is who God is. This is his name. Remember, he proclaimed this in Moses. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Verse 19 and 20, I want you to see this. Verses 19 and 20 highlight this grace, but it highlights this special, distinguishing grace towards his redeemed. And I think on two different levels. First, he distinguishes God's common grace to all mankind versus God's special grace to his people. See that in his text. Verse 20, common grace. Sorry, verse 19, common grace. Verse 21, special grace. Verse 19, look what he says. God has allotted, see that word? All the things of creation to all the peoples under the whole heaven. In other words, like Paul says in Acts 17, God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. But, verse 20, but we see that God gives his people more, something better, something far more grand. Verse 20 says, but the Lord has taken you, you, not the whole world, has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance this is the fulfillment of this pervading central promise of the Bible I will be your God and you will be my people common grace versus special grace 
And if you take it up a notch, I think there's a heightened sense here of God's distinguishing grace in these two verses that moves beyond common and special grace to actually election, redemption, and reprobation. Remember what Romans 1 says? Remember what Romans says about what God does when people begin to worship the creature instead of the creator? When they exchange the glory of God, God gives them up. God gives them over to it, over to the passions of their flesh, over to idolatry, over to these things. God gives them up. Now think about why God would respond so seemingly severely to that is because when we take all of these kind and beautiful and life-sustaining gifts that God showers down upon all mankind and then twist them and pervert them and say, behold your God, that makes God angry. Rightly so. And so this, I think this second layer of contrast in verses 19 and 20 is this. That God has given the nations over to false gods. But he graciously redeemed the elect for himself. See that again in verse 19. God has allotted the things of creation to be bowed down to and served as judgment on them. But in verse 20, no, I've graciously taken you out of that, people. I've redeemed you out of that iron furnace. I've redeemed you out of that land of idolatry, out of Egypt, to bow down and serve me, he says, the one true and the living God. In other words, God's saying, don't worship the things of creation like the world does. That's their judgment. I have not given you over to that. No, 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 I've rescued you out of that. I've rescued you out of that, out of that futility and that bondage and that foolishness. Therefore, now please watch yourself carefully. God is gracious. Watch yourself carefully. Don't forget, I'm also righteous. Remember, God will by no means clear the guilty. He's already reminded them, "You, you saw what the Lord did at Baal Peor. When some of you bowed down to idols. And Moses now is saying in verses 21 and 22, he said, don't forget what happened to me. I'm the servant of God. And I'm not going into the land. The Lord was angry with me because of you. I've got to die in this land. I can't go over to the land like you have. You've received that. God is righteous. Don't forget that. He's gracious, but he's righteous, and he will punish every sin. So he warns him in verse 23, take care. Again, he says, take care lest you forget. Look what he says. Don't forget the covenant. Don't forget these commandments. Don't forget this relationship you're with in with the one true and living God. Don't forget and go make an image. Because God is faithful. Reason number eight. You may forget the commandment. You may forget the covenant. But God won't. Why? Because he's faithful. You may be unfaithful to the covenant. But God won't be. And I want you to get that. I want you to get both sides of that. God will be faithful to all his promises. Including the promises of punishment. God is faithful. He is faithful to his word. God will visit the iniquity upon the guilty, especially idolatry among his chosen people. Why? Reason number nine, God is jealous. God is jealous. Do not, verse 23, he says, do not make a carved image of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Why? Verse 24, because the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, I want you to note something about this description of God as jealous. It's not a slip up. It's not a throwaway line. And it's not hyperbole. This is God's nature. 
This is God's name. God's jealously is literally part of the second commandment. God's name and nature is jealous. Two paragraphs after God reveals that awesome display of who he is to Moses in Exodus 34, he also says, you shall not worship any other gods for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now don't confuse the jealousy of God with the jealousy of sinful It's not the same. God's jealousy is righteous and it is directly connected to his glory that he deserves and his steadfast love towards his people. And it is manifested, this jealousy is manifested in two ways. He's jealous for his name and he is jealous for his bride. He's jealous for his name. God is the only one who actually deserves the praise and the honor and the glory from all creation. He deserves that. He's rightly jealous for his name. And nothing slanders God's name more than idolatry. These false images, wrong thoughts, misdirected praise, divided affections. God is jealous for his name. And he will unleash this consuming fire of his wrath against every idolater. The Bible ends with that promise. Revelation 21, but as for idolaters, their portion will be in the lake of fire. God's jealousy is inseparable from his love, his love for his own glory, and his love for his people. Think about that. Like, if a man is not jealous over an unfaithful wife, he doesn't love her. Righteous jealousy is proof that you value both your wife and your marriage, and God is jealous for his bride. Look at, look at verse 24. Look how, look how God describes this relationship between him and his people. Every time Moses speaks the name Yahweh, every time he says the Lord almost, he says, the Lord, your God. Not the, not the God of the nations, the Lord, your God. Nine times in these two paragraphs, the Lord's your God. I'm the Lord your God. I'm your God. God means it. He means it. He takes this relationship with his people more seriously than anything in the universe. And the cross of Christ proves that. But idolatry is spiritual adultery. Unfaithfulness. To a faithful God. And God is jealous. And God is just. Reason number 10. God is just. He's going to bring judgment on the wicked. He's going to punish spiritual idolatry. Spiritual adultery. And this is what most of this second paragraph is all about. God's promise of judgment on the idolatry of Israel. I want you to see here how God is sovereignly omniscient. Look at the very first word in verse 25, when. Not if, but when. When your children's children turn to idolatry. God is prophesying about this certain future. All through here he says, you will. You will soon utterly perish. You will not live long in the land. You will be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you. He will leave you few in number. You will serve other gods, but... You will seek the Lord and you will find him. When all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord. Take note, God is talking about the the, the distant future. How does he know these things are going to happen? He's sovereign and he's omniscient. And these two things work in concert to bring all that he has purposed to come to pass. And you also see here in his prophecy of judgment that he's slow to anger. One day, look at verse 26, one day God plans to, to summon court together. 
And he's going to bring witnesses against Israel and their idolatry. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Now, towards the end of Deuteronomy, God's going to do this again. He's going to, he's going to make this even more clear in Deuteronomy 31 and 30 and 31. But think about this. When does this prophecy, when does this promise get fulfilled? At the very least, when he exiles Israel to Babylon. How does the book of Isaiah start? It starts with God reconvening this cosmic court hearing to indict his people. He says, verse 2 of Isaiah, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and I have brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God is executing his justice against Israel. And think about this. Who does God call as witnesses against their idolatry? The very things he forbid them to worship. Heaven and earth. Yeah, they worshiped me. Baal says, yeah, they worshiped me. The, the calf says, yeah, they bowed down and served me. But think about how long has that been going on? How long has it been going on? Man, there's 700 years between Moses and Isaiah. How long has this sin been going on? Seven centuries God has demonstrated his divine forbearance with Israel's unfaithfulness and their sin. But in the end, absent of repentance, God is just. And look what he does. He unwinds these covenantal promises that were conditioned upon their obedience. He says, you broke the covenant. You were unfaithful. I waited patiently for you. But guess what? No more blessing. You will be utterly destroyed. No more land, verse 26. You will utterly perish from the land. No longer will you be numerous as the stars in the sky. No, no, verse 27. You're going to be left few in number. Worst of all, God will no longer be their God and they will no longer be his people. He will give them over to the idolatry they seem to have loved generation after generation after generation. There you will. You'll go and serve the gods you want to go. You just go serve the gods of wood and stone that can't see or hear. This is why Moses is preaching this sermon. This is grace from God. He's telling them what their future is and they, he, they have a chance to repent and not to go this way. Don't go this way. Please don't. Guard your soul. Be careful. You're prone to idolatry. It's wicked. It's evil. God is not like that. He's reminding them that their heart is prone to wandering and he's reminding them of who God really is. The end, right? God's people are sinful, but God is merciful. There's great hope and there's great promise in that three-letter word at the beginning of verse 29, B-U-T, but. Israel will fail and fail and fail over and over again to keep the stipulations of the covenant that they made with God at Mount Sinai. God points to here, he's now pointing to and promising something that is better. God declares that though his people's hearts turn away from him, they will return to him. That though they run after false gods, they will turn and seek him and they will find him. Their hearts will be changed. Their disobedience will fade. When? Verse 30, in the latter days, it says. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God. You will obey his voice. Man, it sounds like, sounds to me like there's something better coming. Something, there's something beyond the judgment we deserve. There's something better. Sounds like we're getting an early glimpse of a better covenant. They ain't even gotten a land yet. You'll see later in Deuteronomy, that's exactly what God's promising. 
Because he knows we need it. Knows we can't do it. We can't meet his glorious standards. Praise God, verse 31, the Lord your God is merciful. See how he's in in this section? He's merciful and he's faithful. I know I've repeated that point. Because I want you to see that God is faithful to punish covenant breakers and God is faithful to keep his promises. Look at verse 31 again. The Lord your God is merciful. He will not, he just said you will. He will not leave you or destroy you. He will not forget the covenant that he made with your fathers. Brothers and sisters, here's the good news for you. God did not forget the unconditional promises God made to Abraham despite the broken covenant at Sinai. And you've got you've to ask, like, how can this be resolved? How can God be merciful and just? How can God forgive sin and yet not clear the guilty? How can God be faithful to his covenant and still show mercy to covenant breakers? How can he express all of, this, all of that which he is? Answer. And the number one reason God vehemently forbids the making and worshiping of images, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Just, he just draws it together. Christ is the image of the invisible God. You familiar with the servant songs of Isaiah? These obvious prophecies about Jesus Christ that are confirmed in the New Testament. I want you to know how, you don't have to flip there, just how amazing it is that God transitions into that very first servant song in Isaiah 42. He, he ends Psalm 41 after another stretch of con- condemnation against the sinfulness and the foolishness of idolatry. Listen to how he ends chapter 41. He goes, Behold. He's talking about idols. Foolishness of idols. Behold, they are a delusion. Behold, their works are nothing. Behold, their metal images are empty wind. Then he says, Behold my servant. In other words, stop beholding these images. And start beholding my son. Behold my servant. Whom I uphold. My chosen one. In whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Not the images. On him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then at the end of that servant song. That's about Jesus Christ. And that's in opposition to idolatry. God says I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Why? Because Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. He is God made flesh. And in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is the literal embodiment of the spiritual nature of God. And he has brought forth justice and mercy for all the nations because of the cross. Christ crucified is the manifestation of all of God's moral perfections in one singularity. How can God simultaneously forgive sinners and yet not clear the guilty? Or, as Paul puts it, how can God both be just and justify the ungodly? The servant songs of Isaiah say, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and idolatry. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We're like sheep. We've gone astray, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Each to his own way. But praise God, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Love, mercy, grace, faithfulness, patience, righteousness, justice, judgment, salvation. Together in that one spectacular singularity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible Therefore, 
Turn from idols and serve the living God. This is how the Bible describes salvation often. And I want you to get this. If you're here today and you have not come to the realization that Jesus really is God in the flesh and that Jesus came into the world, lived the perfect life, died a bloody death because of your sin and he was raised from the dead on the third day and he right now reigns from heaven. He's coming back to bring judgment on the wicked. If you have not come to that realization, I want you to realize this first. You're an idol worshiper. You're condemned under the eternal law of God and you need to repent. Right now you live your life according to a bunch of wrong thoughts about God and you need to repent. It's time for you to leave your sin, destroy your idols, and bow your knee to the one true and living God. How? By coming to his only begotten Savior who, who is the image of the invisible God. Come to Christ. And for the brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, guard your heart diligently. The same application is true for us. Wrong thoughts about God is idolatry. Don't speculate about God. Please stop speculating about God. Don't represent God by what you think, but by what he said. Don't play loose and fast with the scriptures. Don't tear out pages that you don't like. Don't scratch out verses that make you uncomfortable. Guard against believing and promoting a lie. Guard against believing and promoting a low and incomplete view of God. Instead, dig in. Dig in. Search the whole counsel of God. Seek the scriptures. And remember that idolatry is a matter of the heart. There's so many things, if you don't know this, that draw you away from the one true and living God. Good things. Don't let your money, your family, your kids, your house, your career, your politics, your hobbies, your on and on. Don't let those things divide your affections. Get them down and get God where he belongs. And third, be jealous for God's name. He is. Be jealous for God's name and his church. We need to imitate God. How? Share the gospel. It's the image of God on display. Defend the truth. Guard the church from false doctrine and wrong worldviews. They're banging down the door. They're breaking the door down. Defend the truth. Be jealous for God's name. Push back on and correct anybody who misrepresents God according to Scripture, whether they do it innocently or maliciously. Fight for the truth and pray, hallowed be your name. And at the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be your name, that God's name and his character would be considered and treated and revered as holy and gracious and glorious and majestic. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for your family. Pray that for this church, this city, and whatever else God lays on your heart. Hallowed be the name of the Lord God Almighty. And last, before we take the Lord's Supper, live Coram Deo. And run. What I mean by that, 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 that's a little phrase that R.C. Sproul made famous in our generation. Live before the face of God. Realize that God sees. God is spirit. This is one of the implications of God being spirit. He's everywhere all the time. He sees. He sees so deep in your heart, you can't, you'll never even get that deep. He knows everything. So guard your heart diligently. He's near. He knows. When temptations rise, He knows. Run to the throne of grace for help. He's near. When you actually do fail and you sin, guess what? He knows. Run to the throne of grace and receive mercy. When you're afflicted and crushed, guess what? He knows. Run to the God of all comfort. He's near. God is spirit. When you're anxious, guess what? He knows. Run to the God of peace. And the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. 
The fact that God is a spirit and not some idol in some temple somewhere means that he knows and that he's near at all the time. The Lord is at hand. He's near, he sees, he knows, and he acts. You know why? Because the Lord, our God, is the one true and living God. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, Lord, forgive us of wrong thoughts about you, low thoughts about you, divided hearts, idol worship, guarding these little things in our hearts. Lord, forgive us. You see it all. Help us to be a people who live in the light of your presence. And rejoice in it. And who love and make great use of this glorious access you've given us. Straight into the consuming fire like Ryan showed us this morning from Hebrews. Come to you anytime. You're near. You are the one true and living God. And you are our God. And we are your people. And we don't deserve any of it. And we praise you. We praise you. Help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen.